Hello and welcome to Fashion as a Force for Good, a podcast brought to you by Smartworks. This is the charity that uses the power of clothing and coaching to help unemployed women get the job and transform their lives. In the 10 years Smartworks has been running, we have learned that when a woman looks and feels her best, she can change her life. I'm your host, Tiffany Dark, and every week I'll be talking to a new guest about the power of clothing, their relationship with fashion, and the transformative role clothes have played at key moments in their lives and careers. Time to find out whose wardrobe doors were opening this week. Gina Martin is a political activist, author, and all-round hero. It all started at a summer festival in 2017 when Gina was upskirted. Despite confiscating the man's phone and handing him over to police, no charges were pressed. So began Gina's long and relentless campaign, which resulted in a change of the law and the 2019 Voyeurism Offences Act. Gina's experiences have led to her becoming an excellent spokesperson on justice, equality and rights, and it is a pleasure to have her today as a guest on the SmartWorks podcast. So, Gina Martin, activist... Mover, change maker, so many amazing things about you. Uh, we are so delighted to have you on the SmartWorks podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the lovely introduction. <laughs> so, um, just for the benefit of everyone who doesn't quite know how you rose to, uh, well, I was going to say fame, but that, you know, <laughs> rose to notoriety as well. What what was it that happened to you that changed the whole course of your life, Gina? Um, I was working in advertising when I, in my early 20s and mid-20s, and I was sexually assaulted at a music festival. I was upskirted a family festival in London, and I'd been through a bunch of experiences already that I were kind of in the spectrum of rape culture and sexual assault anyway and harassment and kind of had never really um had basically lay in bed and been like I wish I'd said this or I wish I'd done this and when I was upskirted in 2017 in July at that festival I just um had a police case dropped a few months before and so I effectively did all the things that you know we ask victims and survivors and women to do and I got the phone and I got the guy and I got the picture and I handed everything to the police in the moment as soon as it happened and was told there was nothing I could do and I I essentially founded a media and political campaign because I found out that upskirting wasn't a sexual offence and I took that to um, parliament and partnered with a law firm and spent two about two years trying to change the law and eventually brought in the Voyeurism Act in 2019, which made up getting a specific sexual offence. I mean, that was a very short way of describing what was an extraordinary, I mean, it was a, a, a an invasive thing that happened to you while you were out at a festival with your friends. I can't imagine what the picture was like and for what it was like for you to see that on somebody else's phone. And then I think that at some point you chased the guy through the crowd. Or he ch- you confiscated his phone and he chased you. Is that right? Yeah, I stole his phone and, and ran to the security and police and he chased me with the, to try and get his phone back. Um, yeah, and like I said, handed him in to the police and all that stuff and didn't do anything. And how did that feel after you alluded to previous occasions when you had felt let down? 
How did it feel once again to be let down by the law? Like exhausting, but not particularly shocking. Like I'd had experiences with the police before uh, where they hadn't taken this kind of stuff seriously and I hadn't been able to go through a process with them that I'd wanted to go through. So, you know, essentially just like furious, like incredibly angry. And that's the kind of fuel that leads to trying to change things. Not that I should have had to do that. And I've spent years of people being like, you must love politics now because you did that and you must really believe the democratic prayer and you must, and now I don't at all because I shouldn't have had to do that and have any legal or political experience. And I did all that on my own because they didn't. Well, that's, you know, that is something. You spent two years bringing this through and quite how you kept going for two years, I don't know. And then you did get it changed. You know, you you were like a citizen politician. What was it you think that was the qualities that, that led to your success in getting this law passed? First of all, how did you manage to keep going for two years? How did you not give up? And secondly, what was it that actually brought about the change that you were asking for? Um, first question, how did I not give up? Uh, I did give up like five times, but I, I didn't have the liberty to, or the privilege to be able to give up when I wanted to, because it had gone, it had gone so far and there were so many people relying on me to do it. And I had legal teams working, I was working with. So there comes a point where, you know, you're crying in the bath for four hours and you kind of have to find some kind of way to continue going and be really honest with everyone that you're not going to be hundred percent that week or whatever. Um, I took a lot of breaks. I relied very, very heavily on the people around me. I deprioritized friendships that weren't nourishing and safe friendships. I relied super heavily on the kindness of other people. And I also lent very heavily on a collective of other women and survivors and victims and organizers and activists who were doing this work because I think you can probably, you can have the best idea in the world or you can have a, a valid campaign and and project but if you are on your own you're always going to feel like you're not enough or you're going to feel bonkers so I didn't I didn't I didn't particularly do well during that whole thing mentally emotionally and I've dealt with the consequences of that since what was what was the turning point what 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 eventually got to what you were asking because you were asking for the law to be in place and was you know was it something was it someone was it something in you how did that change suddenly come about there was a whole there wasn't a moment there was a, a you know 400 500 very small moments and small decisions and small strategies that that led to it actually getting changed whether that was the people that i chosen to work with like Ryan my lawyer who was very politically astute and very aware that that was this was my campaign and he was amplifying and he would do the kind of political strategy and teach me like Mr. Miyagi along the way. And he, I would do the entire media strategy because I knew that. And he was quite honest about the fact that he didn't. And that kind of honesty of strengths and weaknesses made us a really good campaigning team. Um, or whether it was people within the, the halls of parliament who kind of made it their business to get us meetings with other people, people who were, you know, publicly praising us, but were also actually helping us behind the scenes because a lot of the people who were praising us wouldn't meet with us behind the scenes. It was all very optics. I think a lot of the success was down to our strategy of knowing the political process and what the outcomes could be and what the options would be in terms of the decisions that policymakers and ministers would could make, and then having a plan for all of those and trying to stay sort of two steps ahead. So for instance, when Christopher Chope 
objected to a bill we had tabled with Vera Hobhouse, Vera Hobhouse, who was the MP for Bath. We knew he was going to object. He was a Tory, a Conservative MP. Yeah, backbench Conservative MP, yeah. And we had support from every political party at this point to, to see this bill through. And he was going to object to it. And we knew that three days before. We made it a real important point of like doing a lot of media around the fact that we had the success of this bill and that this was going to become law. And we had the support of ministers, which we got before he objected so that we could table a government bill. And so that when he objected, the public were really upset about it because they'd seen all of this media, victory media. So like we were very strategic about like how we put pressure on people who were blocking us in parliament. And I think ultimately we were able to create a lot of cultural momentum that we were able to turn into political momentum, but like that wouldn't have happened without like hundreds of other people on the outside walls of parliament, whether that was like organizing groups for sexual violence or it was student groups or it was uh, teachers who were like passing the petitions around schools because, you know, they'd been upskirted by their students or it was, you know, young girls themselves who we were doing case studies with. Like there was hundreds of people who were involved in getting that passed. Yeah. It sounds like you were strategic, but also very smart. So your background was advertising. Yeah. Did you have to learn all of this from scratch? Did Ryan teach you? Did you how the political bit and legal bit? Yeah, but I, I mean, campaigning is just advertising, just not for like capitalistic horrible things. Like if you can, if you can, if you can like make people care about whiskey, they don't even know they want it yet. You can make people care about things that actually affect them. It's it's you know all the kind of basic marketing things like turning a complex copywriting, which is what I did, turning a complex legal legalese body of text into a single-minded digestive statement or question you know it's all those kinds of things and that's what a lot of campaigning or especially the the comms for campaigning is and digital I did use a lot of digital we were doing you know petitions and ads for the petition on Facebook um targeting people who were really sympathetic to these kinds of social justice issues and I was organizing with like women's groups and all, you know so like it kind of was marketing but I just took all the rubbish capitalistic stuff out of it and put the skills to a, a use that could actually hopefully help some people <laughs> and since then you've stayed with it right you've, you're pretty much a full-time activist now is that true yeah but I'm no I'm not I'm definitely I mean that was my first campaign and I was like 25 so I haven't done anything like that since I wouldn't I wouldn't change laws I wouldn't go back into politics I mean I, I don't even really my politics has changed massively in that I don't really believe you know fundamentally that criminalizing stuff stops stuff happening when I was 25 I couldn't see any bigger than that I was like well if you criminalize it that's going to be a massive deterrent and it's da 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 but I've, I can see outside of that now I can see that even the police get there after the fact and how you know, how often do we get convictions for sexual violence offences? And so like, I'm a lot more in preventative work now. I'm a lot more in education. I'm a lot more in cultural change, allowing people to kind of have a think about themselves and where they are placed in this work and what their gender looks like to them and the lessons that they may have been socialized into and how they can like grow and heal from those lessons. Because ultimately, you create a better culture when you when you can allow people the space to question all of these things that they've been taught. Wow, that's amazing. Have you found that working on that side of things where you, you have to go in and you, you have to you have to almost be an expert and you have to be an educator, have you had to change the way that you are or learn different skills or is it something that's come naturally to you? 
I think this work is much more naturally aligns with the person I am, like the personality and character type I am than the political campaigning did. I'm not good at being, I mean, obviously I am because I, we changed the law, but like I didn't enjoy being in rooms of politicians and having to have like cryptic conversations for optics about things and not say certain things and only tell them we were meeting with that person after we'd met with that person and how do you know, it's, it's very deceptive and very inauthentic British politics. And I just didn't enjoy that at all. And I really, you know, it felt like being in a, involved in a institution that I, I grew up like in a working class family. Most of my generations, generational, you know, go back all Scousers, Liverpool, like my parents don't look at politics and see themselves represented. Like I've never grown up with anyone in my family that is in that world. Like I just didn't feel comfortable but I had to do it. I felt like I had to do it at the time to get the job done. And I wouldn't have been able to change the law if I hadn't done that. But now I get to be in rooms of people who aren't trying to find the right, find the right answer so they can get votes or, you know, aren't trying to sabotage me and Ryan doing the next stage of the campaign because they want their name to be on the bill when it comes out and it changes or aren't, you know, I'm in rooms of people who like, genuinely are like this is really interesting because I when I was I never realized when I was nine years old my parents saying that I think that my dad made me feel this way and I think that I learned that from my dad and what it means to be a boy and I think I'd you know that's really fulfilling work because people come to these this work of questioning the gender binary and questioning where misogyny comes from and questioning how sexual violence proliferates through our society they come to it because they want to be better people and they want to do they want to be part of a better society and they want to be responsible and accountable for the things that they may have said or thought or done before. And I just would much rather be in rooms with people like that and have really honest conversations. I feel like now we have some really progressive young politicians in British politics that I'm like excited about for the first time. But you know what, Gina, I think one of the reasons why you're so successful is because you are so authentic and genuinely yourself. And I think that um, connection comes over very easily I mean like you know you are fun and outgoing and human and soft and you don't look scary or manipulative but yeah I was gonna ask you I mean uh you know how much you know there was me I just judged you by what you looked like how much scrutiny and judgment should women take because you know, it's so hard when you, and this is one of the things that SmartWorks deals with, when you walk into a room, what you look like immediately within a split second is, is giving all sorts of messages to the person who, who is there or they're, they're, they're translating those messages. Um, you know, and, and you've dealt at the hard end, uh, or are dealing at the hard end with, with where those messages turn scary and dangerous. Um, but for women walking into a room for a job, looking good and looking like yourself and looking confident helps you feel confident and helps you be yourself. I mean, how, how much should women pay attention to all of this? There isn't an answer because women are such a non-homogenous, broad reaching set of people with so many different feelings and ideas about their. I mean, you know, we rarely, cis women rarely recognize that they even have a gender expression. We think that trans and non-binary people have a gender expression, but we don't. You know, I know that when I'm, if I've really tried to get into 
floaty prairie dresses like I really went hard and I really tried because I really wanted to look good in one and a picnic in London in the park but ultimately I couldn't leave the house in it because I felt like a tiny baby girl (laughs) I just couldn't deal with it I need I've always needed to be like mix like some like feminine elements I am very feminine looking I have very you know long hair and I play up my femininity but like mix that with other elements to me that maybe feel slightly I don't know what another word for this and I hate this word but slightly edgy or like have some kind of music characteristics in them because like my dad's a musician and I play drums and I've grown up listening to music I love rock music and like there's some masculine elements I love wearing secondhand men's clothes that is a gender expression that I have and I know now through my work and through being able to grow into my 30s and gain, gain more confidence like how I feel when I dress authentically to me when my adornment of myself like replicates not only my personality but where I sit in my gender as a woman and also how I feel politically that doesn't necessarily mean slogan t-shirts but it could mean lots of different things that's been a probably a pretty big journey to get through for me because of in campaigning especially like I was assimilating in parliament so I was going into parliament always used to dress really colorfully and really enjoyed that I would go into parliament and I would be like wearing like a black suit jacket and like I put my hair in a, a low bun and I was like really like playing down you know, I was, I wear so much jewelry and I was like taking all my jewelry off and hiding my tattoos and stuff. There's a difference between wanting to feel comfortable and not incur penalties that patriarchy puts there for you when you look different or a certain way or not in the rule book of what heteronormative cis society says you should look like. There's a difference between that and like assimilating and not even realizing you're doing it, right? I was sort of assimilating in terms of I was dressing how I thought a female politician in there would dress without knowing I was doing it. And I remember take, just thinking, oh, I won't wear jewelry. It's not the place, like, it's not really the place for it. And not thinking deeper into that. But there was one day when I went in for a meeting with Ryan and I went to my workplace in advertising afterwards. And those are two very different environments. <laughs> advertising where everyone just drinks is hedonistic and it's very like edgy and everyone's like, oh, I'm just like so creative and cool. And then parliament where like, everyone looks like they're from a cookie cutter machine. I went back to the agency and I was literally dressed as a suffragette and I didn't even realize. Like I took a picture and put it on Instagram because I was laughing so much. I had like knee high leather boots on a long black coat, like a ruffle white shirt and a hair and low bun. And I was like, oh my God, I look the part. Like I'm trying to get them to take me seriously. And I noticed that and was cognizant of that and decided to reject that and go back in wearing what I would normally wear. So I went in very brightly colored clothing and stuff. And it really helped when I went back in how I would dress because it sent a non-verbal message that I was comfortable in that environment to be myself. And that in conversations with politicians, I would speak as myself and I would show up as myself regardless of which room I was in or what stage of the campaign we were in. And I I did that as well as I could, even though a lot of the time I was quite scared. But it really gave me a little bit of confidence to go in there as myself. Having said that, it's very easy for me to say that as the person that I am in the world. It's very different for my friends who are like non-binary and trans or like black disabled women I know her campaign is to go into parliament and say, I'm going to be completely myself because girls are getting kicked out of school for having natural hair, young black girls. So like we have, it's the way that certain institutions and environments will react to us is about them and it's about the way that they view people through their identity and through you know racism and you know transphobia and all those kinds of things 
but it's very easy to say like just go and wear what you want but ultimately like I can do that but like some of my campaigning friends would do that and would literally be faced with racism and and struggle to get through the process because of the way they were they were being treated so I think trying in small ways to show up as yourself authentically through the way that you wear your clothes and do your hair and style yourself just being cognizant of how much you're assimilating and trying in small ways to have those small victories in ways that you can feel comfortable and be safe in those environments is is probably the, the best way to put it. I think that's so true. I mean, even I, I know women who have to work in male-dominated environments where they have to, as you say, assimilate and dress down and they'll wear a really crazy ring or something just because it's the one way that they can have their own personality and identity and they'll, and that will give them so much inner strength from doing that. I was a SmartWorks client in 2020, and this is my story. I came to SmartWorks at a really challenging point in my career path and had been referred by an NHS support service. I was feeling quite unconfident, which for me was really unusual, um, usually having been an independent, career-minded woman, and that was something I really wanted to get back to. I had a limited understanding of who SmartWorks were or what they did before going to my first appointment but I just knew that they were going to help me prep for an interview and maybe get some new clothes. The SmartWorks space was an absolute oasis. It was calm, it was beautiful, and I was greeted by a very glamorous team. I had a dressing, which was really fun and boosted my confidence. It was amazing how a new outfit could make me feel, you know, much more confident and more beautiful. And after that, I had a coaching session, which was amazing and I still use the learning from it today. They made me feel really welcome and treated me as an equal which was so valuable and I left feeling empowered and that bit stronger all in space of just a couple of hours. I don't know how they do it and then I went to my interview and on arrival they commented on how lovely my outfit was and when I left their office I passed a woman in the corridor and she commented on my trousers as well. Overall, the SmartWorks experience really empowered me to be sure of myself and to know my worth, which is huge. But Gina, we asked you to bring an item of clothing today that meant something to you. So have you got it there? Yeah, I've got it here. This is my, it's one of my favourite small business labels. This is a dress by a brand called Squint, which is actually here in Melbourne. And I discovered Squint 2019. I'll show you it. It's a white uh, apron dress by Squint and Alice Dancy. It's white with all these like black squiggles and suns, bursting suns on them. And it sort of looks a bit like abstracty Matisse. It's got this apron that goes at the top and this bubble sleeve. And I wore this when I changed law. I was like really like expecting to go back to like advertising, which was like the most ridiculous thing ever. I was like, I changed law and go back to work. And obviously it didn't happen. And I was kind of put in a washing machine of just like media and like nominations for awards and just like the wildest stuff. And I had no money and no idea what I was doing. And I was still trying to work because I couldn't afford to like do any. I was just like losing my mind. And I was kind of obviously thrown into like circles of people who like do this stuff all the time. So they were like going to a cool events and they'd have like makeup people at the house. And like, and I was like, what is going on? And I needed a, an outfit for the Cosmopolitan Awards, because I, I was nominated and I ended up winning 
influencer awards. It dressed this expensive. I think it was like two hundred pounds or something. But I was like, I've never bought something expensive. But this is like, I'm gonna wear this to all the things and all the events. And I honestly, like, I put it on and I just, I think back of like of me in the craziest period of my life. I have no idea what I was doing, and I was like so nervous about everything. And just felt like the most sunshiny, happy person in the world in this dress. Like I've never felt, and it's the perfect representation of me. It's like feminine, but it's like a bit like, whoa, a bit like loud and fun. And just always felt amazing in it. And I've worn it. I wore it also for my engagement party with my family when I got engaged to my partner of 10 years. In all the big moments of my life, I reach for it because I just think it's the happiest dress in the world. Ah, it looks amazing. What a beautiful thing to bring along. Thank you. I mean, you have used, I mean, your style, like I was saying before, it really semaphores the, the, the vibrancy and the energy and the positivity that I think comes from you. And I, I fully acknowledge that what you go through and have been through is super hard, but I think it's this positivity that helps you be so successful. And you touched a little bit on having to run the campaign and do your day job on the side, which must have been incredibly stressful. You then wrote a book, didn't you? Have you managed to turn it into a a career that will support you? Yeah, I'm very lucky that I have managed to. I mean, I've, it's been a a difficult thing because I think, well, activism doesn't pay, you know, you pay. I paid to campaign effectively, whether that was, you know, printing materials for events at Parliament or... I mean, I even had a friend of mine, Sam, actually create a fundraiser for me at one point because I was just not managing. And so I'm always really careful to to differentiate activism and the other stuff I do. And so, you know, if I'm doing a talk or I'm at school or whatever, I'll be talking about some of the work I've done. I'll talk, be talking about making change in your community or like finding the thing you care about. And I'll always be really clear to be like, what I'm doing now is an activism. <laughs> like right now I'm a speaker. And like next week, when my book comes out, or next month, I have a book coming out in July, I'll be doing lots of book events and I'm a writer. You know, when I'm, I do take a, a job for social media, which was a huge part of why I didn't make loads of money. I haven't become someone really rich after changing the law is because I didn't really want to take money from unethical companies. And so I've never worked with fashion brands. I've never worked with like massive brands, really on social media and I'm, I say no to sort of 80-90% stuff I just wouldn't be able to sleep at night um, but when I do it's like this is influencing so I'm very clear on like that I have like five different jobs but I've definitely used those to keep me going while I can while I was able to like redirect and find the type of quote-unquote activism which I think like what I'm trying to do now which is facilitation which is with young people in schools and like in corporates I've used that that and my writing and my speaking and all those kinds of stuff and consulting to be able to like keep me going and like allow me to create a you know a career that I really want because I want to be doing this for the rest of my life like I want to be in rooms of people on picking gender and misogyny and um, organizing around that for the rest of my life so I'm lucky that I've had that opportunity like for sure and you are an amazing writer. I, I say this quite enviously, actually, because it wasn't what you started out doing. You started out, and I'm going to guess it was copywriting and advertising. But I love the columns that you write for Glamour UK. They're amazing. No, oh, thank you. And you brought this book out, uh, which is Be the Change, a toolkit for the activist in you, which I'm very much looking forward to reading. And then you have a new book coming out. Yeah, yeah, No Offence Bot is coming out in July. 
So tell me about how you got into that. Do you find writing easy? Did people approach you? I didn't originally, no. Like when I was like 23, way before campaigning, when I was like 22, 23, my sister was a journalist for a long time. She's a comedian and she was a journalist for a long time. She's been doing comedy for 12 years, but she was paying the bills of journalism. And I used to be like, she's such a good writer. Like I really want to be able to write because I struggled in school with like academic subjects, but I always had like a great imagination for stuff. And so I really wanted to be able to like write well, but I was a bit, I don't know, I didn't find it particularly easy. And so my sister actually helped me develop my writing and she actually got me, I think like one or two commissions and they were like very small commissions for now defunct publication called The Debrief and I would get paid like £100 or something. <laughs> I'd write like, here's how to make your Christmas hot chocolate. And like, I loved it. <laughs> but I just wasn't, I just didn't, you know, it was as I was coming up and doing that stuff and doing a couple of those things while I was working advertising, you know, people were paying less and less for it. So when I was campaigning, I I wrote a lot during the campaign because I was writing up people's stories and I was creating case studies. I did a collaboration with Eliza Hatch. We photographed women and people who had been upskirted in the places where that had happened to them so they could reclaim the space. And I would interview them and I'd write these pieces up. Um, that was a series we did with Refinery29. So I got like really into writing then. And I found that I'm much better at articulating how I feel and how I see the world and like zooming out and being able to see like a constellation of all these things and how they affect each other and create a story around that when I can actually write because as a person I'm very fast I speak very fast I'm very jumpy from thing to thing I really struggle to stick with focus as I as I chat to people I'm very like "Ah!" so writing gives me like an anchor and a grounding to discuss and explore these kinds of issues and I'm like I love it I mean be the change I wrote in three months I just vomited everything I'd used and everything I'd learned about campaigning into a book right after law change and wrote the book that I needed and then no offense book came from six years of people meeting me at events or DMing me. I mean, I probably have like 15 DMs right now asking me this, like, how do you respond to this blank and not like lose it because I can't and I just cry and I don't know how. And so I took like 10 of the the most common phrases I hear around gender or sexual violence, things like, you know, if you don't want attention, cover up, boys will be boys. And then invited 10 other writers to write on 10 of the most common things um, that I, I wouldn't and couldn't write on around race and transphobia and disability and all those kinds of things. And like, um, so you became an editor. Yeah, I did. I became a project manager, which is not my skill set. And I should have realized that, <laughs> but I did. I think I did well in the end. I really tried. Um, and yeah, now we have this book, which has compiled 20 of those phrases that halt, halt conversation and like how to think about them, where they came from, how to unpick them and maybe how to start thinking about responding. And effectively, this book is for dominant communities and dominant groups who want to be like, I want to sit across the table and actually say to my uncle, right, the reason why I think I find that difficult is because of this. And maybe we could explore what, who, you know, when you say the police protect us, who is us? And like, we, you know, like really have a conversation that gets past just like, I don't know, that's not the point. Like, oh, I hope this book helps people find that confidence to be able to disrupt some of these things. Do you know what? You posted a video on one of your social feeds a few months ago. Um, we can do hard things. It was an image of you playing the drums, doing your art, you know, getting out, getting dressed. And, and I was just like, where does all this come? I mean, did you cut, was it a very creative family? How did you learn to do all of these incredible things, Gina? I have a very creative family. Yeah, my dad's a drummer, taught me drums. 
my sister's a comedian. My mum is an artist, illustrator. She's had like four different lives, you know. I got a DM not long ago and it's probably the most impactful DM I've ever received from anyone. I think about it all the time. I was, it was Christmas and I was home with my family. I was just like videoing, you know, like videotaping. <laughs> I was just like, you know, taking Instagram stories of everything. And my dad was like, you should get off your phone for a second in a loving way. And he was like, I, I know that this stresses you out because you feel like you need to be on all the time. And I really want you to like feel not on all the time. So he actually, I turned the camera on him and he made a video for my followers like, Gina is just going to take some time. She's quite tired. And I hope that's all okay with you. And we love her. And we just want her. And I posted it and I got a DM when I came back and someone said, I'm really, I don't want this to sound overly familiar, but I just have to say this, like watching all the different videos you've posted of your family, it's very clear how you're able to get up and keep doing this work all the time and care about people and do it because they it looks like they just pour so much love into you that like you have it to give to everyone else and I remember thinking I've never made that connection I just know that I'm like so loved by my family and I feel so seen by them but like it's the least talked about most potent motivator and catalyst for a a life of like trying to be better and trying to evolve and trying to help people and trying to learn and is to be like so deeply loved by a support system that you that is and it's truly unconditional like I feel that and so I think that's that's part of the reason why I'm able to like I I don't do well like I cry all the time you know I I struggle all the time with doing this work like I I I mean that I moved to Australia for a reason um (laughs) I'm now in Melbourne because being in the UK and being in London and being always on and so busy was incredibly hard and that was one of the reasons why we decided to move away and have a have a a gap in in my life like a bit of time difference and a bit of opting in I come back to London two months of the year my partner's Australian and it felt like we could go and have this kind of quieter life and then I could come back two months of the year and be in the hustle and bustle and do a bunch of work and then work remotely the rest of the time because it's just so hard. But I think being loved in the way I'm loved by my support system and the people around me makes it so much easier. And I don't think we talk about that enough. Do you miss them being in Australia? Uh, more than you will know, yeah. I really, yeah, I do. And have they been to see you yet? Oh yeah, they came within like... <laughs> I mean, they'd never been to Australia before and I moved in July and my mum, dad and sister and brother-in-law came in the February for like a month and well, me and Geordie, my partner, got married and they just came and stayed and met Geordie's family for the first time. We went together 10 years and they'd never met and um, they loved it. And obviously, you know, before they left, they were like, well, we're obviously coming back, we'll be back next year. <laughs> Excellent. So I'm going to ask you, how does Scouser st- style go down in Melbourne? Well, Melbourne's quite like, there's, it's amazing. There's like pockets of such different like communities. It's like super, it's the closest I could get to not having a culture shop leaving London. And there's really like fun, awesome parts of Melbourne where it's just like you walk down the street and you're like, oh my God, it's Shoreditch on acid. Like it's so edgy. Like I can't even, I look like positively like cottage core. (laughs) So I'm really enjoying being here and like getting to know a different you know, city. It's really cool to like get to know it, but it's hard. It's really hard to move away from home. Yeah, and also suddenly you have to make a whole load of new friends, don't you? I mean, how do you um, do? You feel like you have to explain yourself to new people. How does that work? Yes, but I have felt like that for a long time because of there's always a moment where people ask what I do, and I don't know how to explain it to people, and then 
or there's a moment when like they'll be like let's follow each other and then they see I have loads of followers and then they have loads of questions or people find out I'm like a very uh, you know I'm a gender equality activist and they've before they meet me and they've made a load of assumptions about the fact that I, I will be like policing their language or I'll be really difficult to hang out with so like before I moved to Melbourne I would meet new people in London and they'd be like oh you're actually really like fun and I'd be like oh cheers <laughs> it's like everyone thinks I'm going to be mad serious so I've kind of got used to there being like a uh you know they meet me but there's also like this whole thing in my life and stuff that I'm doing that they become aware of and then there's like a lot of conversation about that anyway so it's kind of the same here where I have to kind of explain (laughs) what but it's nice because a lot of people don't know you know people can't make assumptions about me because they don't know what I've worked on or what I've done before and that's kind of freeing in a way I guess yeah it's blank canvas again which is nice yeah so do you know, I want to ask you one final question. With SmartWorks, or what we try and help our clients with is building confidence so that when you walk into a room and you're feeling profoundly unconfident about your ability to do something, you've got all the resources that there are available. You know how to talk about yourself. You feel like a million dollars. You feel like you, you look like the person who's going to get the job. You must have been through so many moments when you felt like you couldn't make happen what you wanted to happen or that you know you weren't able to do what it was that you wanted to do how do you what do you do when you're feeling unconfident how do you muster confidence well you just mentioned a video I made that was like we can do hard things I literally only made that video to hype myself to watch for myself because I was actually like in such a crisis of confidence that day and I was like I I showed up to do something and it hadn't gone well and then I was like I can't go back like I'm too embarrassed and then I knew that I had to go back and try again because if I didn't that would be the lasting memory of it and I'd be struggling with that so I had to rewrite it by going back and doing it again um there's been many moments where I felt like super unconfident or scared or I've messed up in public and I think it depends on your personality type, what you need, but there's one thing that will make a huge difference. And that's just like, literally, it's really hard though, is having people around you. And I mean like quality over quantity, like people who feel like home and who get as excited about what you're excited about, even if they don't understand it. So like, I don't have any friendships anymore like I used to have where they kind of made me feel like like too much or like, you know, I had people who were like, why do you think you can change a lot? And I was like, I don't, but I'm just angry and I can't, they're not doing it, you know, like those people aren't really in my life in the same way anymore. And it's not that I rejected them. It's just that I slowly allowed that relationship to kind of be de- slightly deprioritized in my life. I can't get through crisis of confidence if I don't have those two or three people that I can go to and be like, I feel like an idiot. Like I'm freaking out. Like, I don't know why I'm trying to do this or like, what am I, like, how do I, can I just talk to you about it or like cry about it for two hours? You have to have those people because you can't see yourself clearly a lot of the time. And it's those people that will allow you to see yourself more clearly. And if you have access access to therapy, if that's something accessible to you financially, like that's a life changing thing to be doing every week to have a place where you can put big feelings like that and unpick them with someone who gets to know you and can see patterns, make connections and can also like, you know, talk some real stuff to you when you can't do it for yourself. 
I think that connection with other people, that conversation, the vulnerability, if you can be vulnerable with people, that's how you get through that hard stuff. I hate fake it till you make it so much, that phrase, because like I faked it till I made it. Yeah, sure, I guess. But I didn't fake it. I went home and cried with people every night. Like I had my partner would put me in the bath physically and put me to bed like I was a child because I couldn't function because I was so scared. And I was there was so much pressure. So like, yes, in certain rooms, you may have thought I did that. But most of the time I wasn't dealing well. It was I was leaning on people. And we are we need that like we're, we try to be individual too much we are an ecosystem we need those people so look at your relationships in your life and be like who is the person that feels like home am I asking to be around them enough am I being vulnerable with them them enough and I'm asking am I asking for help enough and tell them that you want more of them in your life Gina that is the most amazing and excellent advice thank you so much it's been such a pleasure talking to you today and I wish you so much joy and success in your life with everything that is coming forward and I and I'm absolutely can't wait to read both of your books Be the Change and No Offence But which is out in a couple of weeks time thank you so much thanks for having me you've been listening to Fashion as a Force for Good a podcast by Smartworks if you'd like to find out more about Smartworks and the wonderful work they do or make a donation or volunteer or book a coaching or styling appointment, visit smartworks.org.uk or follow at Smartworks Charity on Instagram. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening so you don't miss a thing. Join us next time when we'll be sitting down with another stylish face to chat through their style journey.